0: Hello. Welcome to Bethel Baptist Church podcast. Today, January 24th, 2021, we look at a sermon entitled, A Worthy Walk, from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Today, Pastor Steve presents the big idea, our attitudes and actions must align with our words with a God-given purpose, that is, our unity in Christ. Take your Bibles this morning, if you would, Go with me over to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to begin our walkthrough uh, or continue our walkthrough of Ephesians and pick up our walkthrough here in Ephesians chapter 4. Now, as, as we begin our study this morning, we begin walking through this, the very first word that we run into is, Therefore. And um, it, it, it really, as you're looking at your scripture this morning, it is the hinge point of this entire letter. Most of Paul's letters contain hinge points uh, where they shift from perhaps theoretical to practical, from principle to application. Paul signals that change in in many different places throughout the Scripture with that word, therefore. You think about Romans chapter 12 and and verse 1. Uh, that's, That's a classic example of that. And as we think about having walked through so far chapters 1, 2, and 3 of the book of Ephesians, it's as if we have been sitting in a theological classroom. For the past three chapters, we've been sitting there listening and watching Paul clearly moving us through a myriad of doctrinal truths. Now now just think about this for a second. There is our adoption as God's own children. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. There is the hope of our inheritance. Chapter 1, verses 11 and 18. There is Christ's glorious rule. Chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. There is God's lavish grace. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. There is unity with God and with each other. Chapter 2, verse 11 through... Chapter 3 and verse 13. And all around us is the glow of God's incomparable love. Chapter 3, verses 13 through 21. As I like to tell my family, we've covered more ground than Lewis and Clark. And we are just scratching the surface. Now, it's time for us to get to shift gears. And to move toward the door marked, therefore, on the other side, winds a walking path as far as the eye can see, a path that is going to take us all the way home to God himself. Paul is waiting there. He is the tour guide. He is going to walk us down this path to show us how to stay safely on the path through all the twists and turns that we find in our lives. The life of our church, marriages, family relationships, work, even spiritual battles that we are going to come across. All of that is ahead of us in chapters 4 Five and six of Ephesians. And so this morning, our big idea is simply this. Our attitudes and actions must align our words with a God given purpose, and that purpose is our unity in Christ. Our unity in Christ. So are you ready to move out? Are you ready? You got, you got your, your, your stuff together and you're ready to go? I want us to, to learn to walk together in this path of grace that Paul's laid before us. And this morning we want to see the, the command. We want to see the evidence. We want to see the foundation for a worthy walk with God. And we're going to look at that in chapter 1, verses 1 through, or excuse me, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 this morning. So as we begin, we want to talk about a command of the worthy walk, a command to walk worthy. That's what we're supposed to be about. This opening sentence of chapter 4, where Paul says this, therefore I, The prisoner of the Lord implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Folks, this marks a turning point in this book of Ephesians. The message moves from the theological over to the practical. The shift can be expressed in many ways. I kind of, I kind of enjoyed doing the study for this because it came across all these different ways that, that, that it's expressed. This, this shift from the theological to the practical. You can go from duty or from doctrine to duty. You can go creed to conduct, from Christian wealth to the walk, from exposition to exhortation, from indicative to imperative. Because of the amazing theological realities of chapters 1 through 3, Paul implores the Ephesians and us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. It's exciting stuff. I know you're not excited yet. We're working up to it, okay? Let's look at some key words in chapter 4. Now, we were just talking about this this morning in Sunday school. That, that as you go through your scripture and, and you are looking at a passage and you circle words and you, you say, okay, what, what words are important? And, and I've come up with a few words that I think really are important for us to understand as we walk through, uh, Ephesians chapter four, verses one through six. Now, Paul sets the tone for the rest of his letter here in, in verse, uh, one where he uses, first of all, the phrase of the prisoner of the Lord. Paul is drawing attention to his being a prisoner of the Lord. Why? Why would would that be important for us to see? Well, perhaps he was silently communicating the level of commitment which he expects of himself and others. That's, That's why he would be called a prisoner of the Lord. His intensity certainly shows a a vocation and a purpose given by God himself that shapes every aspect of Paul's being. And so this is an important part. He sees himself not only as the prisoner of the Lord, but but frankly, he's in in Rome right now, and he's in prison right now. He's, He's writing a letter. And he says, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord. So on one hand, he is a physical prisoner, but also he is God's prisoner, taken captive by Christ. The second thing I see here is he uses the word implore. He says, I implore you to walk. Now, these, these words have intense feeling. Or, or an incredibly strong desire that Paul is communicating here like he did in Romans 12.1. I mentioned that a second ago where Paul says, therefore, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, which you present your living bodies holy, uh, a sacrifice wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. He says, I beseech you, I implore you. I spoke at the, at the um, uh, memorial uh, the other day, and I, I went to that passage in 2 Corinthians 5 where Paul is talking about the fact that, that the ministry of reconciliation is a very huge part of what all of us are called to do on God's behalf. And in there, Paul says, I beg you. I beg you to make yourself right with God, to get right with God, to, to be in that situation. And so what we see here is, in the context of Ephesians 4, this is not simply a request. You know, if you got, if you got some time, if you, if you would be willing. No, no, no. Paul here is urging. It's a plea. He's literally begging you. I implore you, I'm calling you, please come and be a part of this walk that God has called you to. He's not giving suggestions, but divine standards, standards apart from which you can never please God if you're not walking with him. And and we need to understand that. And also understand this, Paul never exhorted on a take it or leave it basis. But he could not rest until he had given those who were under his spiritual care the impetus to walk with God. Paul is calling us to walk with God. I am calling you to walk with God. You are saying to God, I want to follow hard after you. Understand, Paul is imploring here, begging, if you will, please walk with God. Another key word here, and you know, I've mentioned it a number of times, is the word walk. It's used frequently here in the New Testament to refer to daily conduct. It's not just about putting one foot in front of the other, it's about how we live our lives. That's the walk, if you will, of our lives. It's the walk of who we are, it's the walk that God has called us to, the, the lifestyle, if you will that God has called us to. It's the overall theme here of the last three chapters of Ephesians. Paul is saying, walk. Don't just just stand, walk. Get busy in your life. Do what God has called you to do. We're going to see that as we we go through here in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Now, Here's another important word. It's the word worthy. It's the Greek word that's translated as axios. A X I O S. I don't normally give you those transliterations when I'm preaching, but I thought it was important because the the it carries the root meaning of weight. And and the word is from which we derive our English word, axiom, which means to be of equal weight. So if you have an equation, the axiom indicates doing something to each side of the equation to make it equal, to make it remain balanced. So Paul is saying here that we should live in a way that is equal to the great blessing of chapters 1 through 3. So you have all this incredible doctrine out here in chapters 1 through 3, and Paul is saying that you need to walk worthy of, And the idea there is that we would walk in our everyday lives in such a way that balances this doctrine over here with how we live. So that it ought to make sense to us to to live out the doctrine that Paul's talking about. It's a worthy walk. It's a weighted walk. It's a balanced walk. Walk. One more thing I want us to note here is that Paul uses the terms calling and called. This refers to the Lord's sovereign, effective call of salvation. So, uh, you know, look at the verse here again. Uh, You know, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implored you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling for which you have been. Called. You have been called by God. This is the call on our lives to walk with God, to follow Him in His salvation. Without God's calling, without God choosing us, our choosing Him would be totally ineffective. It starts with God, He's first. In fact, if God did not call men to themselves, no one would come to God because unregenerate men are dead spiritually. Do you remember that from Ephesians chapter two? So they're not going to be able to respond because they're dead. So God has to call us. So God has called us. It's part of that process that God has called us to salvation. And so here we are in the midst of this walk. So there is a command here that, that God has commanded us to walk worthy. The second thing we want to look at uh, this morning is the evidence. The evidence that, of this worthy walk. Now God has called us to a life of holiness. That is a freedom from sin and transformation into Christ's likeness. God has called us to to this life of holiness. God has begun a good work in you, Philippians chapter 1. And and then uh, we think about this from Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 8, 1 Peter chapter 1, that we are called into Christ's likeness. And you know that one of the verses that I go to regularly is, is that we are being conformed to the image of Christ, and how important that is for us. Also, and 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 our Heavenly Father has also called us to unity. That is that it is a life that reflects our peace in God and his lordship over all of the earth. We just looked at this back in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, and again in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. So this begs the question, how do we walk worthy of or live in a way that honors This calling that God has placed upon us. How do we do that? What what does it look like? What is it? Okay, what is the evidence of this walk? And I want us to know that Paul points out several guiding lights to help us to find our way. Look at your Bibles, chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. With all humility, And gentleness with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. To gain a better understanding of these qualities that we see here in verses 2 and 3, and to how to live in them, we want to take a moment to look at each one of them individually. So we begin with humility. Humility. Now, Bible commentator John Stott says that humility is essential to unity. So aside from love, humility most distinguishes us from the rest of the world. Let that sink in for a second. Apart from love, aside from love, Humility distinguishes us from the rest of the world. Humility was not a virtue of the Greeks and the Romans that they admired at all. The picture that was drawn in their minds was abject, servile attitude of a crouching slave. To the Greeks and the Romans... Humility was marked by the absence of self respect. Jesus, however, provides us with this whole new picture showing us that the very Son of God was gentle and humble in heart. You remember Matthew chapter 11? Come on to me, all you that are weary and heavy laden. Do you remember that? Jesus says in that passage that he is gentle and humble in heart. That Jesus says in Mark 10 that he came not to be served, but to serve others. That was the humility that he showed us that was to mark our lifestyles. Think of the picture that Jesus gave of washing the disciples' feet is there anything in that day in that context that was any more humiliating than for the guy whose job it was to wash people's feet and Jesus came And washed the feet of his disciples. In light of Christ's example, how would we define humility? It is an attitude of the heart that recognizes God's love for and value of others and is willing to put others' needs first. That is a mark of true humility, it's the opposite of pride which turns the spotlight on us and seeks to satisfy self. I want to be in the spotlight. I want everybody to kowtow to me. That's that's not what we see here in the life of Christ. In contrast to that, humility lights up others, puts the spotlight on others. And seeks to serve with the same dignity and kindness in which Jesus Himself chose to serve. Are you willing to wash people's feet? That's the picture. I'm not saying that you need to literally do that. I am not going to wash Kent's feet. Not going to happen. But do we love one another in that kind of sacrificial way? Are we willing to love them enough to wash their feet? Number two is... Gentleness. Gentleness. Humility and gentleness, or meekness, if, you've, if you're using the King James, it uses the term meekness there, go hand in hand. Where humility is an attitude, gentleness is the action derived from that. So you have humility as the attitude, and now the the action is found in gentleness. Contrary to popular belief, meekness is not weakness. It is strength under control. Gentle people are not harsh with others. They don't strive to get their way above all else. Instead, gentle people are considerate. They don't complain. They bear without irritation or resentment the faults and injuries of others. When they get angry, it's usually more at the wrongs done to others than wrongs done to themselves. Gentle people are more concerned with, with other people hurting others rather than hurting themselves. They 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 just kind of let that go. Gentleness, like humility, is also vital for maintaining unity because it soothes out our rough edges and creates a safe spot for everyone. It reflects Christ's heart, which in his own words, again, he is humble and gentle, Matthew chapter 11. Jesus even bestowed a special blessing on the gentle. Remember what he said in Matthew chapter 5? Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. All of us, if all of us in our church balanced out strength with humility and gentleness as Jesus did, frankly... Most of our conflicts would disappear like wisps of smoke in the air. Here's another one, patience. The next one here is patience. Humility may be the hardest of the four traits that we're going to talk about, but patience comes in the hardest way. Amen? Patience is hard. Okay? I thought about saying, say that with me, patience is hard. Yeah, patience is hard. John Stott gets to the nitty-gritty in his definition. He says this, long-suffering toward aggravating people, such as God in Christ has shown toward us. Long-suffering toward aggravating people. It's, it's the thing that God has shown toward us. Patience gives people time. And sometimes we need a lot of time. Patience is essential especially in the body of Christ because it creates an atmosphere of grace that allows us to fail and to grow and to make mistakes and to learn. We need to be patient with one another. I have shared with you before my life verse, 1 Timothy 1.16, where Paul comes out of verse 15 and he says, this is a trustworthy statement and worthy of all acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and Paul says what? Of whom I am chief. And every, everybody knows that verse, right? Verse 16, nevertheless... Oh, that's a hinge word. Nevertheless, for this cause, have I, Paul, obtained mercy that in me first Christ Jesus might show forth all longsuffering. That's that's an old word for patience. All longsuffering to those who might believe on him to everlasting life. In my life, I believe that God is willing to take all the patience necessary to move me from where I am here to where God wants me to be. I know me, okay? I know me, and I know that that is going to take a lot of patience on God's part. And all God's people said, amen, because you know you and God is willing to do whatever it takes to conform me to the image of Christ. So, I'm in a place where I'm allowed to fail and to grow. I'm in a place of grace that admits mistakes and learns from them, hopefully. It is a clear space for feelings to cool down, reasonableness to regain its footing. And patience, too, is one of Christ's qualities. He kindly waits for people to repent and receive him to new life. Aren't you thankful for the patience of God? You need... Somebody, yeah, somebody needs to say amen because if you aren't patient, if God wasn't patient, where would you be? God patiently drew you. He patiently encouraged you to come through the Holy Spirit. Loving tolerance is the next one. Just as humility and gentleness go hand in hand, so patience and loving tolerance, I think, go hand in hand as well. Patience makes us gracious, especially when we've been treated poorly. Tolerance is the action side of patience, which reaches out with forgiveness and empathy to others. How can we bring ourselves to empathize, to forgive, and treat others with grace who have hurt us by remembering how gracious God acted toward us? I've had people say to me, well, I I just cannot forgive so-and-so for this. What exactly did God forgive you of? that you have the right to hold something against another individual. We need to think that through. Remember how graciously God has acted toward us. Even when we were dead in our sins, when we were at enmity, we were enemies with God, He gave us His Son, lifted us up into heaven to sit in heaven with His Son. put a twist on John's word, we can bear with others because God first bore with us. First John chapter 4. We can welcome others with a warm embrace of tolerance because our hearts have been warmed by the flame of God's love. Are we willing to love others and forgive? Do we have the right to say, "Well, I'm not going to forgive so-and-so." And then turn around and say, "God's forgiven me of all my sins and all, all my shortcomings and this and that and what? It doesn't make sense. We need to be people of loving tolerance. Number five: diligence. In preserving unity, diligence in preserving Christian unity completes Paul's picture here of this worthy walk, what that looks like. All of the previous qualifications he mentioned here, humility, gentleness, patience, loving, tolerance, promote our unity as children in God's family. Now, We have a responsibility to zealously maintain this unity that we would safeguard it from all of the human ills that can tear us apart. Selfishness, pride, exclusivity, gossip, favoritism, discord. Unity, not uniformity, unity needs to be the persistent and consistent concern of every member of Christ's body. Because Christ has established peace, Second uh, Ephesians 2 and verse 15, and Christ is our peace, chapter 2 and verse 14, we are called to live in the beautiful bond of peace. We find that in chapter 4 and verse 3. So, in a divisive, warring, wounding world, the most powerful testimony of the churches that we can give is genuine unity as believers, prompted by true love and shown as an example of peace that reflects the reality of God like nothing else can on earth. The unity of the body of Christ ought to stand in stark contrast to the world around us. Let's talk about the foundations. The foundation of a worthy walk. To illustrate the walk based on the unity of God that we have in Christ, Paul listed seven facets here. Underscored by the reputation, the repetition of the word one. Okay, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. Pick up the narrative here: There is one body, one spirit, just also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. Notice, first of all, as you look at your scriptures, Paul didn't say, there will be. The basis of our unity is not reserved for the future, but it is real. It is here, it is now. Paul begins with, there is, not there will be. He says, there is. There is. There is one body, Jews and Gentiles make up a single harmonious fellowship of believers in a universal church in all of these ages. Number two, one spirit, the same spirit of God gives life and dwells in each one of us. And by the way, I know there's seven of these and I am not going to develop them because you would be here till supper tonight, all right? I understand that. So I'm going to hit them. I'm going to move through these pretty pretty quickly. But but understand that God provides this common principle of life for all of us and his presence and ultimate ground of our, our unity is through the Holy Spirit. One hope in our calling. All Christians are to share the hope of the eternal life in heaven and being transformed into Christ Sinless likeness. We look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He is one Lord. Christ rescued us from this futile, slave sin-enslaved way of life, purchasing us at the high price of his own blood. We belong to him. The one who is the only way to the Father, the one who is with the Father. We are members of His body. One faith, only belief in Christ's saving work on the cross and His resurrection can bring us eternal life. Salvation comes only through a faith anchored in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our shared belief breaks down the dividing wall of race, nationality, gender, status, even time. One baptism. We publicly proclaim our identification with Christ through the unique and unifying sign of baptism, an outward sign of an inward change, an inward faith that has taken place in us. Our we, we just need to understand how that fits together. Our God and Father of all. As God's own children, through belief in his Son, Jesus Christ, we all look to one Father. He is the sovereign creator, the Lord of all who believe. He is not a distant deity, reading the newspaper in his slippers, and allowing the world just to go on. He is a hands-on God. Think of that last song we sang today. Behold our God. That is the message that we're trying to communicate. And do you notice something? Our unity is founded on the Trinity. Listen, one body of all believers is is. Vitalized by one spirit so all believers have hope the body is united in one Lord that's Christ the members act by one faith and by identity with him depicted by one baptism one God the Father is supreme over all and, and operates through and resides in all the Spirit, the Son, and the Father are one, so are we who were created in God's image and recreated again into Christ's image. What a glorious reason we have for this worthy walk. I'm out of time. I'm, I'm over time. Okay, so what do we learn today? Let's, let's put a wrap on this. I have a riddle for you. This has been, as I'm watching you and I'm preaching this morning, it's kind of like that old Memorex commercial where the guy's sitting in the chair and his hair's blown straight back. We've, we've come. We, we came hard this morning. And we, we, we brought this incredible message. So here's a little riddle for you. What's small, extremely powerful, Short in length, long in reach, can lift up and unite as well as tear down and rip apart. Need a little help? Maybe Solomon could be standing by with some clues. Think about Proverbs 12:18, Proverbs 15:4, Proverbs 18:21. If you're trying to look those up real quick, I'm gonna just jump ahead and tell you. It's the tiny muscular organ that sits just behind our teeth. It is the tongue. Words formed and launched by our tongues can welcome people in or push them away. They can welcome them in or push them away. They can reveal humility, gentleness, patience, and tolerant love that wants to keep us safe and together with Christ. They also disclose pride, Roughness, irritability, judgmental attitudes that would wound and fragment the body of Christ. So, as with our attitudes and our action, we need to align our words in a God-given purpose, safeguarding the unity created for us on the cross. Here's the truth. We won't always agree with each other. I know that's kind of a shock to you. You've probably never heard that kind of thing before. But we're not always going to agree with each other. And we will probably sometimes hurt and offend each other as we bump along this path that God has called us to walk. We're still human. And that means that the things are probably going to get pretty rough as we try to walk this path with God. But the way we deal with disagreements, hurts, and offenses makes all the difference. So so let me just just put this before you this morning, and and we're going to close. But as you reflect on what Paul has taught us and what the Spirit has revealed about our own attitudes and those kind of things about ourselves, let's learn to live more fully in that peace and speak in a way that upholds it. That we speak in the peace of Christ toward others and we live in a way to uphold that. And may God's peace be the guiding power in our lives and in our words that we use. Father, this morning we do stand in awe of who you are as you have called us to walk this walk, called us to be a part of, God, what you are doing in our presence. You are imploring us to walk in a manner worthy, balanced. Father, this morning we just simply ask that we would reflect upon this portion of Scripture, that it would set the stage for where we would desire to move forward to. And Father, may we recognize the incredible importance of our unity with one another. Brothers and sisters in Christ, with you, Father, as the head, We give you the praise and glory this morning for all that we've covered. Ask your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen.